Hi! Welcome to Drunk Art Review. <laughs> this is a place where anyone from teetotal to blind ass drunk is welcome to give their honest ass opinions about all forms of art. Now let's get into the episode, shall we? Alright, come on, Jodie, get in the zone. Get in the zone. Welcome back to another Drunk Art Podcast. I am here with the lovely Rosie. Oh, here I am! <laughs> <laughs> We're happy to be back. We are. And what's the theme we're going to talk about today, Jenny? I think it's a pretty special one, isn't it? Yeah, so what did we decide to call this one, Rosie? What's that beautiful pun you gave me earlier? <laughs> um, well, she asked me, she was like, what are we actually going to call this episode? And I was like, um, <laughs> it's it's a playwright. <laughs> like, playwright? <laughs> Such a good pun. I think it's great. She was very pleased with herself when she told me that earlier. I was like, yep, that." That's that's going to be it. <laughs> Perfect, right? So, I mean, if you didn't um, guess from what we were saying, it's all about plays. I'd like to just drop in that we chose this theme based on the fact that it's my birthday month. So I'm older, not that I feel any older or any wiser. It's been a bizarre year. I'm celebrating my birthday by putting the Christmas decorations up early. Does that make me weird? No, not at all. It's funny, actually. Um, one of the first ballets I did, and I know this is probably going to be for another episode, was actually in the Nutcracker. So I got to see that at Christmas time mm. in like the Royal Ballet in London. Oh, it was amazing. It made me feel so Christmassy. Oh, I loved it. It's, so it's lovely to go and see those kind of things at Christmas, isn't it? Which yeah. we're going to be missing out on this year. So that's kind of sad. So. Oh, but you see, the thing is, you know, so many of these productions are now on film, not like mm-hmm. actual films, but. Well, of course they are films, but I mean, like, they record the performances for us to watch, which, mm-hmm. you know, so we can always enjoy them that way. Yeah, I mean, I did recently, I watched um, the English National Opera doing a version of La Boheme, um, oh. and it was like a drive-in one. So instead of like a drive-in cinema, it was a drive-in opera. Oh my and God. so when everyone was doing their applause, instead of clapping, or they did clap, but you couldn't really hear it, but everyone was honking their horns as, oh, like, I love the, that. as the applause. And it was brilliant because all the actors and actresses were like going into the audience. And at one point they drove a car off onto stage and yeah, it was really good, really good. So if anybody is interested, like go and find these things. They're definitely trying to make them accessible to people at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to a drive-in for like the first time, like a real one this um, summer Mm. when they were just sort of starting to open things up again. Mm. And everyone was in their car and it was like sort of just hitting golden hour Mm. and it was in... uh, I can't remember, but it was like this mansion's grounds. So yeah. you had this amazing backdrop with like the most amazing gardens. And then we were watching like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and I was like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's great watching something under the stars, I think, you know, it's an experience. Yeah, it's a different experience. It's nice. It's just nice going and seeing things. Mm-hmm. Jenny, tell us all about the play you're going to tell us about. So the uh, play I'm going to discuss is La Cage aux Folles. What, is, what does that mean? So La Cage aux Folles actually translates to the cage of mad women. Uh, yeah, so folds I think is also used for a effeminate man is kind of a slang word as well. But um, the whole title La Cage aux Folles translates literally to the cage of mad women. Okay. Um, so it's kind of gone through quite a lot of um, variations of what it was. People will probably know one version of it or different versions of it. It depends. But I'm going to kind of like go through the history of it and then talk about my favourite version of it, which is kind of my favourite thing I've ever seen. (laughs) So the original play was created as what's known as a farce. So a farce is a comedy that entertains the audience through exaggerated and extravagant kind of Mm storylines. And generally, because of that, it means it's an improbable situation. So it's almost a bit like 
slapsticky almost, but yeah. not always. But there's such exaggerated situations that are unlikely to ever happen, kind of things. So that's what a comedical okay. farce is. Yeah. Kind of makes me think a little bit like Canterbury Tales, that kind of like idea of the perversion and, you know, obtuseness of something. Yeah, so it's, it's generally um, a comedy version of that. Mm-hmm. So it's like so out there and exaggerated that that's what that kind of thing is known as. It's known as a farce. So the original play was one of these. It was a farce and it was written in uh, 1973 and it was by Jean Poirot. That was a, an amazing pronunciation there. <laughs> I think I'm saying that right, don't quote me. The story itself, for those that don't know, so it centres around this chap called Lon, who's a son of a nightclub owner in Saint-Tropez and the owner's gay lover. Mm-hmm. So Laurent is engaged and he wants to bring his future wife home to meet his parents because he views his dad and his partner as his parents. Mm-hmm. He doesn't yeah. have a mother. Um, she left the scene years and years before so he's never had a mum he's just had his two dads yeah which in the 70s when you're thinking about it, is quite a... it's pretty forward th- thinking and i love that yeah and he's bringing home his fiance now his fiance knows about his dads mm-hmm. but his fiance is also the daughter of very ultra super conservative parents oh my and they're really kind of you know against gay people yeah. and they're very about morals and that kind of thing so it's kind of a collision of, um, you know, <laughs> two opposing kind of families. Yeah, it's kind of about the chaos that ensues around that. Georges and Albin are his parents, and they're the gay couple. Albin performs in the club. She is a drag mm-hmm. queen, known as Zaza. Oh, fabulous! <laughs> and, yeah, it's all based around the chaos that ensues about, you know, these ultra-conservative parents meeting very kind of liberal, mm-hmm. a gay couple. One of them's a drag queen, one owns a drag club and how they're trying to like fool them almost into making sure that <laughs> the son can marry the daughter. Yeah. Um, and it ran for about, I think it ran for more than 2,000 performances. Oh, it was, wow. you know, quite a successful play in that original state. So the play itself was then adapted into a film in 1978, and it was a Franco-Italian comedy film. It was co-written and directed by Edouard Molinaro, and it centred around, again, a gay couple, but the names were changed in it. So instead of being Georges and Albin, it was Renato and Albin, but the son still remained Laurent. Okay. So the name, one of the names changed slightly, but again, it was the same kind of thing. There was, you know, a gay nightclub owner, his partner, who performed in the club, and there was the son who was trying to get married to this woman whose parents were ultra-conservative, and again, chaos ensues. I believe in this <laughs> version, though, in the film version, that featured a mother figure who was kind of then going to come and try and help as well, which then kind of had a knock-on effect to the next version of it, because this is my favourite version. So deep breath in, because I'm going to start rattling off all sorts <laughs> of stuff here. So this was then adapted into a musical in 1983. Now, you can go and do a bit of research on it because it's a bit more in-depth, but basically somebody tried to get the musical going and when they did that, they couldn't get the rights to the 1978 film. They could only get Mm -hmm. the rights to the original 1973 play. So that's why in the musical version of it, there is no mother figure because the mother figure was part of the film rights and not the playwrights. Oh, I see. Yeah, because I guess it would have been new information, wouldn't it? New writing into the story. So Yeah. Yeah, the mother figure is like, featured in the story but she doesn't you never see her a bit like the mm-hmm. original play you never see the mother you just hear about her yeah and it was music and lyrics by jerry herman and then a book was produced alongside it by harvey fierstein and it was directed originally in this first instance of the musical by arthur Laurent. so mm-hmm. it's funny because his surname sounds the same <laughs> as the son in the original i love how you get like mirroring between things 
coincidences. I don't know if that's the reason they changed the name, but the son's name then changed in this version because it's exactly <laughs> spelled exactly the same. It was a super successful musical, mm-hmm. won numerous awards. In this version, the names revert back to the original characters, but some of them, and then they change again. So we go back to having Georges and Albin, Zaza, as the parents. And in this version, the son is then called John Michael. The parents' names have gone back to the original play, but the son's name has changed. Don't know if that's got anything to do with the fact that the director had the same name mm-hmm. and it was confusing, or whether they just fancied changing it for the hell of it. But basically, it's this wondrous... When you go and see it, it's like very bright, colourful sparkles. It's just what you expect this glorious kind of drag show to be, essentially. And Zaza is this very over-the-top dramatic character who is not ashamed of who they are. Yeah. And it's really interesting to kind of then pull it apart because what you see is this beautiful, glorious, wonderfully put together production. But the themes behind it are actually quite sad in places because Mm. it's it's dealing with a lot of issues around homosexuality and the bigotry that was involved in it because obviously there's still the storyline of this son john michael trying to get married to the woman he loves but the father is the head of the tradition family and morality party so he's like a politician you know very conservatively and in this version he's trying to close the drag club and in all the versions, I believe, it happens so that the son then approaches the father and says, I'd like you to meet my future wife's parents, but obviously you're going to have to tone down the, the gayness and you're going to have to ask Albin not to be here because obviously he needs to present as having a father and not two fathers oh, or so a father hard. and a mother. I hate that. Yeah. Having, having to deny who you are and where you've come from and just to have that social acceptability. When, ironically, like, Mm. everyone's more or less in this, you know, they live in the same country, they are, you know, neighbours, essentially, but it's just, it's just ways of life, and when they're seen as different, it... Yeah, and I mean, to the point where Albin, Zaza, the the star, Mm. is they try to tone down their gayness so they can pretend to be an uncle, but because of how flamboyant and, like, just their mannerisms and everything, they don't even feel that they can pass for that. So it's almost like the son is like, I need you not to be here, you just, you give the game away. And it's this whole thing of the son not realising that he himself is being a bigot by asking them to hide who they are. And suppress love. And he kind of takes for granted that both of his dads, and Albin in Mm. particular, kind of takes on his mother role you know walks him to school takes him shopping you know does all these wonderful things with him and loves it's all there's so much love in the whole storyline just adores john michael everything is about john michael for john michael they love him and it's Mm. like this whole heartbreaking storyline that he's asking them to hide who they are which they agree to so that he can be happy in the future but it's heartbreaking with how they are with them um bringing him up Mm. that's that created him so it's mm. all it's denying his childhood but accepting himself you know so that he can marry someone mm. else oh I, oh i hate it yeah <laughs> it goes through all these you know they start you know they get ready for these parents coming to visit so they start you know having to hide certain things around the apartment like particular artworks and statues that yeah. might be a bit, little bit too risque and you know not with morals and they'd asked the son's mother um, if she can come in and be like a stand-in mum. Yeah. You know, but then she says that she can't make it because she's pretty shit as a person, I believe. <laughs> the thing is, though, which um, does irritate me is that society 
gives way to those bigoted views and to to those religious views almost. It's almost like they have more of a standing so everyone else has to fall in line so that they can ex you know expand into the space that they walk into. When actually it could be that both people were entirely themselves and both accepted one another regardless of what was going on. The bigoted people wouldn't would never uh, hide away how they felt for uh, people in the drag community or anything like that, would they? Because their view is the strongest. So it's almost like having sympathy and empathy and uh, understanding of being too much for someone else, mm. that intelligence, emotional intelligence of stepping back is um it just make, makes way for more troglodytes to step through it's just it's, it's insane to me yeah it, it when you sort of break down the actual storyline itself when you think about it it's quite sad and it's funny because of the way the musical is staged it's like this glorious bright wondrous production it's beautiful and then there's this really mm. sad theme running through it i mean it's a happy ending in the end because what happens is the parents come over and uh, george's and John Michael are waiting for this woman to turn up, his mother to turn up Sybil, she doesn't arrive. And then Albin becomes Zaza, she dresses up in drag and pretends to be a woman to try and fool yeah. the parents. And you know, is doing a really good job of it because of how feminine <laughs> she is. And they're fooling the parents and then the parents are over and they're trying to cook, someone's trying to cook dinner, their, um, their butler is trying to cook dinner. I don't think he's their butler, he's like their housemaid, he's lovely, he's a brilliant character. <laughs> And um, he burns the food, so they're like, oh, we'll just go to the local restaurant, it's an accident, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Zaza is very well known in the community, because the whole community is that kind of community. Yeah, loves them and celebrates oh, yeah. them. It's brilliant. And Zaza is the headline act at George's Club, like, Zaza is the star. Zaza is <laughs> She the is one. the shit. She is the Zaza, she's like, oh. And she goes to this restaurant with all the family, and the restaurant owner, who's a very good friend, is like, oh, come on, Zaza, sing for me. And of course, they're all trying to be like, oh, to conserve it. I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> like trying to con them. And then it was like, oh, okay. So Zaza sings a song and gets really into mm -hmm. it. And the whole family are enjoying it, even like the conservative parents. They're like, oh, this is lovely. But um, in all of her excitement and the crowd, you know, like rallying her up, doesn't even think about it. Like something she sometimes does in shows is she rips her wig off. Oh, yeah. And she does this in the restaurant with the ultra conservative <laughs> parents. And it's like, oh, my God, like suddenly the game is up. So they have to go back to the apartment. Now, what's going on in the meantime, because this man is a politician, the uh, ultra-conservative father-in-law, there's a media, the media are following him, basically, you know, newspaper reporters and that kind of thing. And they're trying to, like, get the scoop on him, you know. So for him to be seeing this ultra-conservative party member at this kind of club with these kind of people is quite quite a big thing. So yeah. to hide that, what they do is Albin and George's agree to help them escape the club if they give the blessing to the son and the daughter to get married kind of thing. They'll protect his reputation oh. if he's if they if they agree to the marriage which is what they do but of course yeah. to sneak them out so that the press don't see him because he's a well-known man they have to dress the family up in drag <laughs> so they have to dress <laughs> them up in drag and drag. sneak them out <laughs> so he has to kind of like yes. be enveloped in one of the things that he hates which is kind of funny but there's something about Zaza's character which is like this resilience and you know the song I am what I am yeah which yeah. is like an iconic song that's used sort of for gay pride that's where it comes from the first it's from that musical 
Oh my god, such a strong song. Yeah, written for that musical. And when you see it performed the way that I saw it performed, it was like the emotion in it. So I saw it in 2017 at the Norwich Theatre Royale, and it was John Partridge <laughs> was playing Albin, and yeah. he was just, I just fell in love with that show. He was utterly incredible and glorious and when he <laughs> sung that it was just like you could cry for him even though he was like it was like this declaration of like when you read the lyrics of the songs so it's like I am what I am I'm my own special creation and you know he's like saying take me or leave me like this is what I am I've made myself I've carved myself into this this place to into this world and I know some people don't yeah. like me some people might think I'm silly or stupid some people like but some people don't but this is me and I'm proud of that and I worked really hard to be this and it's right at the end of act one after he's found out about having to then hide it so it's like this heartbreaking like he's so proud of who he is oh. but he's just been asked to hide who he is by someone that he adores oh it's just like the way he sings it it's so heart-wrenching but it's just a beautiful beautiful musical i've got a couple of quotes from uh, jerry herman who was the one that did the music and the lyrics and also from harvey Furstein, who um did the book that went along mm. with the musical and i've taken a, two like tiny extracts from their massive mm. long kind of quotes just because it's just nice to give people kind of a general overview of what they were trying to create when they made this musical oh please read jerry herman he wrote in his memoir lacage is a gay love story but it is much more than that the hero of the show is a gay man who finds his pride by challenging his own son's bigotry towards homosexuals. The moral of the piece is actually very wholesome because it is about standing up for yourself and bigotry. Um, and also, I mean, I'd like to add as well, so Joey Herman, Harvey Furstein and Arthur Laurent were all three gay men that produced this musical, so it was quite nice. And they're all very different yeah, types yeah. of gay men from when I was doing my research, so they kind of balanced each other out to come up with this musical. Like One was quite political, one was very super like creative. It was just like this balancing out of each other's personalities. Mm. Harvey Fierstein said, Obviously we want people to go home with a reaffirmation of relationships. A family does not have to be about blood relations. It's people who come together and take care of each other. That is the community of drag and oh love it uh, the storyline of it is quite you know there's actually a lot of sadness you know and it really touches on some important things in it but when you view it as like a visual thing it's just wow like if you like drag shows you'll you'll love it it's just you know the wigs the costumes there's millions of costume changes and the dancers the ensemble are just like fantastic absolutely fantastic i mean it sounds gorgeous like dripping in color and wonderful flamboyancy you know mm. it's strange as again as i say the the contrast of the some of the really sad and heart-wrenching things in places against the flamboyance and the bright colors of the costumes and the sets and yeah well, it seems more often than mm. not you have those um juxtapositions between mm. uh you know wonderful color and darkness and mm. each one of them sort of radiates the other i think you know and it works so well within a play i think it was it's the best thing i think i've ever seen if anyone asked me what my favorite show i've ever seen is it was the 27 production of la cage falls with uh john partridge's album it was my favorite thing i've ever seen i just adored it utterly adored it now i'm sure you'd love to hear some more information about the amazing play jenny was just raving about Time for something a little extra for your ears. The costume designer for the original production of the Lacage Falls musical was Theoni V. Aldridge. Aldridge was one of the most honoured costume designers in American theatre. 
Her work wasn't limited to just musicals, however, and she designed for film, television, ballet and opera, working on performances such as Annie, Barnum, Gypsy, The Addams Family Values, Ghostbusters and Moonstruck, to name just a few. She received three Tony Awards, including her costume design for La Caja Falls and 11 other nominations, as well as an Oscar and a British Academy Award. Talking about her work, Aldridge said, You don't take over a show. What you do is enhance it, because the costumes are there to serve a producer's vision, a director's viewpoint, and most importantly, an actor's comfort. To me, good design is design you're not aware of. The original costumes for Lacage, created by Aldridge, are bright, colourful, and a joyful expression of drag at that time. As ever, I mean, I like to go into the vaults. <laughs> the vaults of history and things like that. Um, but I think I found something that, you know, it's a, it's a recent production of a very old story. Um, but when I saw it, honestly, like, one of the best performances I've ever seen. And I'm intrigued. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to talk about uh, National Theatre's stage play production of Frankenstein. Oh yeah, yeah. It was done in 2011. Um, they recorded it um, and broadcasted it, and I saw it when they did. And oh my god, it was just—it was sensational. I saw it in the cinema because obviously, like, to have have a have a seat at the National Theatre is was quite expensive. So, yeah. Um, but okay. So before I start talking about the the actual stage play, I want to firstly talk about the origin of this story and its creator. Obviously, it's Mary Shelley, uh, who was. From 1797 to 1851, she was only 53 when she died, um, and pretty much lived her entirety in, Lond in London. Um, but a really interesting fact is that her middle name uh, was Wollstonecraft, like Wollstonecraft. Yeah, I didn't know this until I was researching it, um, which is, is a word derived from Wollston. Wollstonecraft. That word always gets caught on my throat. <laughs> Um, Wollstonecraft is derived from the Saxon name Wolfston, which basically means wolfstone, coming from ancient mythology. Um, and the wolf uh, was held in like high esteem and was sacred to the Norse god Woden, which is basically the earlier form of Odin. It sounds like I'm going off track here, but he was like the protector of heroes, but he was also known mm. as the god of poets. Okay, okay. Which I didn't know this. Then. Yeah. So, so thinking that in mind, that was her middle name. She's Mary Shelley, she's written Frankenstein. But I feel the fact that her middle name, being a connection to like the God of Poets, is like a wonderfully deep root rooted connection to her story of Frankenstein. And I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll go into that. Um, so her father, William Godwin, was an atheist, right? Um, so it was hugely profound and heathen at the time, um, sort of, you know, late 18th century to early 19th century. And her mother was like a, a hardcore feminist. So with parents like this, it was so adverse at the time. So what she was taught as a child was more like the world that we see more visible today, kind of more truthful. Yeah, I don't think people, people don't realize that for those in that day and age, that was super revolutionary to be like that. It that, really was. You know, it was almost unheard of, wasn't it, in some circles? Yeah, yeah. It was this um, uh, melting pot of 
uh, worldviews that we try and have more of today. But considering it was, you know, 200 years ago, that's it's, it's kind of mental. But yeah, like I say, she lived in London more or less her whole life with a short trip to Geneva, which I'll tell you about in a second. Um, but myself living in London, I'm feeling more akin to the history and the turbulent challenges and ideas that have been created here, which I kind of is, is what like Frankenstein is all about. Like these phenomenal ideas um, brought in from like traveling to different parts of the world. Um, but anyway, like I said, this era, the industrial revolution, people are having to become detached from agricultural life um, into this new industrial life. So with science and industrialization and wrapping their heads around that shift in life, it created um, like almost romantic visions and ideas of all these new steps out into the future. Um, so her husband, who she married when she was pretty young, I think she was like, I don't know, 15, 16. He was called Percy Shelley and he was a poet and he was kind of considered to be a Lord Byron type, but in a negative way, like he was sus suspected of incest and corrupting young girls as you do. <laughs> but anyway, when they married, cause they eloped to France, her stepsister, cause she had quite a, obviously an unusual upbringing, uh, Mary Shelley. Um, her sister, Claire, her stepsister, Claire Claremont, or Claire Claremont, <laughs> um, goes with them as they elope in 1814 to France. But as you can imagine, with three of them, it's the company is pretty tense. <laughs> They're like, we're on our honeymoon, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. So uh, Claire Claremont decides that- Cramping my style. <laughs> <laughs> she decides that she wants a poet of her own, nice. which is Byron. So. <laughs> Um, this is all ringing a bell in uh, a, a recent Doctor Who episode where something, you know, yeah, where yeah. Byron was there and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With Byron, they all moved to Geneva, Switzerland in 1816 and they stayed at Lake Geneva where John Milton lived and obviously John Milton wrote Paradise Lost, which weaves in like sort of osmosis wise into the ideas and the foundation you know with her father being an atheist her mother being such a feminist and all these other ideas and the industrialization things kind of just are seeping into her brain and obviously with paradise lost and seeing how man is figuring out who he is you know so yeah they move to lake geneva and they create almost like a commune because wherever byron is people just gravitate to him and byron i mean <laughs> we've talked about him before he was kind of the he was a he fam yeah, and he famously carried like a condom in his pocket, which was pretty baller at the time. <laughs> you want to know what he was, ladies and gentlemen, by modern standards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a fuckboy with some poetry in him, I guess. <laughs> well, nowadays you can get like fuckboys that are like the main singer in a band. In oh, those yeah. days, he was yeah. the equivalent. He was like, yeah. Well, they, they, you know, he was like, you know, rock star standard. So people would, you know, hire out, um, uh, you know, binoculars to try and look across the lake to see what like profanity was going on. Um, but anyway, during the summer that they were there, Byron suggests that everyone writes a ghost story and everyone creates one except for Mary. She is stuck. She doesn't know what to write. So each time she comes down every morning, she's she's uh, like, oh, I don't have a story yet. And then one night she almost, she has this almost like a hallucinogenic vision of the entirety of her story. And so she comes downstairs and she's like, I found, I don't I know what I'm gonna write. And the funny thing is too, is that at this time in 1816, Switzerland and Geneva in particular saw 
the worst thunderstorms ever. And by the lake, it's surrounded by mountains. So as you can imagine, it's this hugely inspiring backdrop of lightning and thunder crashing around these mountains. And of course, like crops were failing as well at that at time and there was loads of unrest. So with that in mind, seeing like the lightning and thunder echo around the mountains, it was inspiring but daunting too. It's kind of that frisson of being on the precipice of like social unrest, but it's like being on the precipice of godlike creation and almost a little bit like God in Valhalla, which also connects back to her middle name, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, these are connections I make anyway. <laughs> but like I say, so that was like the germination of the story. They returned back to Bath in like for winter and Mary, she'd already lost a child um, and she just had a child at this point too, but she'd also lost her mother and with her mother being such a political, social outcast of her time too, I think that that had a massive impact. And at this point as well, she's like 17, 18. She's super young, but she's experiencing these like really huge waves in her life. And so the story of Frankenstein suggests that creation need not be divinely inspired, which in all honesty, you couldn't write something more shocking than that in 1818. Mm. <laughs> so it's almost like she was um, harking back to the ideals of her mother as well as her father and understanding like the death of her own child and stuff like that. And it was originally published anonymously when she was about 18 or 19 when it was written. But the story is what it is because it's a novel about processing and working out what they think about the world. So I don't think a story like that could have been written if she was older, which is like younger eyes are much more honest and open about the lack of understanding they have. So it's more like they can just shoo out ideas into the world and especially with her like upbringing she couldn't see it any other way almost that kind of way of trying to understand something so anyway you've got this backdrop of who she was <laughs> but now for the play so like i said it was recorded in uh, 2011 and it was directed by danny boyle which is really interesting because he's he you know he did like train spotting and slumdog millionaire and like a whole bunch of like really like edgy in your face movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> and for him to like move into theater is such a, a, a huge, amazing move because there's a different type of energy that comes in with film. And when it's translated Definitely. onto stage, in the same way, like we were talking before, like there's a different energy when plays get turned into films. You still have that, uh, the, like the script writing and everything, that energy that relays into the film. But when the film becomes the play, you have so much more spontaneousness and, and um, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot more electricity within it. So yeah, both roles, right? Victor Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster are both performed by Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. So if you think about that, right? Um, each night and performance, they'd swap the role so they learnt the whole script. <laughs> so they took it in turns to be... Yeah, yeah, they took it in turns to be the creator and then to be the monster, which is wow. amazing. And when you when you watched it, which way round was it? Benedict Cumberbatch played um, Frankenstein's monster and Johnny Lee Miller played Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So, and ironically, like, there's, uh, there's this play back and forth with us playing with the idea of who is Frankenstein, because yeah. so often we think Frankenstein is the monster, but then you have the play on the idea of Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, he's the monster, blah, blah, blah. But I'll talk a little bit more into that in a second. But the funny coincidence as well is that Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch have both played like Sherlock Holmes in either like BBC's production of Sherlock or the American show Elementary. Like they were both uh, Sherlock Holmes, which is also 
another crazy, so beautiful analogy about like playing each other's roles. And of course, obviously, Johnny Lee Miller worked with Danny Boyle in Train Spotting. So there's also those connections there. Like, I love seeing like who's worked with who mm. and what people have, you know, similar roles that people have performed. But yeah, the National Theatre has this wonderful blurb for the for Frankenstein, and it's childlike in his innocence but grotesque in form frankenstein's bewildered creature is cast out into a hostile universe by his horror-struck maker meeting with cruelty wherever he goes the increasingly desperate and vengeful creature determines to track down his creator and strike a terrifying deal so the performance starts with the birth so the stage is ceilinged with hanging victorian like bulbs mirroring the time that the book was created um, and also sort of um, harking back to like the industrialization and you know having electricity and also just the electricity that she saw amongst the mountains um, so they're flickering on and off in waves like the lightning around the mountains of Geneva and from that center stage is this taut piece of skin uh, pinned to something like a surgical doorway um, a doorway to nowhere except what's growing uh, behind it and it's like a, a body moving this goes on for more than like five to ten minutes like it's quite a long time when you're watching it on stage i mean if you think about it even a minute's long when something's not happening so for that to be drawn out it's almost like you slowly feel yourself sinking into like the rhythmic heartbeat and connect with the movement so you're really um like with when a mother is giving birth and you you breathe with her to like help like the contractions going you kind of feel that as it's sort of slowly happening on stage like you're awaiting the birth and then finally a hand peeks through and claws through till you can finally see the monster burst forth onto stage and he's shaking and he's innocent and he's new and in, and absolutely entirely alone and the sad part is that the creature is never given like the dignity of a name i always think that frankenstein's monster is an example of one of those things where he the monster is made out to be the bad guy but he wasn't really in, yeah in the essence of it he was created and it was the circumstances around him that just saw him as bad and yeah. kind of influenced and i always felt really sorry for frankenstein's monster well you you, ha you do i mean um He's this new, fresh thing that's ugly and beautiful and new and um, innocent and incomprehensible, like, to what's going on. And he's constantly, like, he only receives backlash for who he is. He's only trying to ever find connection and be accepted. But, yeah, like I say, he's, he's never given the dignity of a name. Um, I always kind of thought that he was called Adam, and in some films he is. Like, you know, like, Adam is God's creation kind of thing. But he's either, like I say, thought of as Frankenstein, which is... It's like he's being cursed with the name of his creator. Like, he can't escape that, of who he is, and this creator abandoned him. Or he's simply called It, or this lost thing. Which does it... It gives you and empathy to it, regardless of some of the things that he actually does, which when they're portrayed within film, like when he, um, you know, in, in the play, like he, he kills a child and he also built, burns down a house um, with a blind man in. But in countless films that have been inspired by Frankenstein, they steal away his voice. They don't allow him to talk about what he's thinking, how he's understanding things. So these quite horrific things that he does, you only ever see them as being um, 
aggressive and yeah yeah horrific, horrific. Um, when actually you're hearing his thought process and you're understanding and having empathy for him because he is this he's this man child figuring out who he is and trying to comprehend the world around him I mean the complexity of it is that you know he doesn't have the same morals that another adult being would have because he's basically an adult being with a childlike mind mm. in that sense you know we have children and as they get older into different stages yeah. in their life they develop different you know different things they develop different um you know the the way they decipher what's mm-hmm. right and wrong and what you know and it's not all black and white in those shades of gray and all those complexities and nuances that children take years and yeah. years and years to develop into a fully formed adult he's not had any of that he's got like a crash course and everybody's like oh he's a man he should just have them straight mm. away which isn't the case he's got like a childlike brain and he's just expected to yeah. not be but also as well because of his physical appearance um, and because he is this uh, creation born of something else he's not given that benefit of the doubt or the empathy that goes with it even though it's entirely what he deserves <laughs> all the films have like stolen away his voice but within this play they've given his voice back giving him huge amounts of dialogue um, of how he's trying to comprehend and understand the world he's been born into and he wants to be a part of society and it's endearing to watch him evolve you care for him as he becomes a man well you care for him because he is this man child innocent you know so there's a lot of humor in that as like ch- children are but also a lot of raw energy and pain that goes with that because he is a man as well and like i said we always associate frankenstein with halloween um and horror and the unfaltering will of how we repel ugliness while you know we praise beauty for no reason at all other than the fact that it's genetic wonderment you know <laughs> But the book, like the play, show more than anything the beauty of creation, life, and our grasping and wanting to understand. And the whole uh, story really is the love we must find for self-acknowledgement too. That's kind of like his constant uh, motive throughout, I think. The creature and Victor Frankenstein, he, uh, well, how I see it is he's, he, they, they are us. Um, we create ideals of ourselves and banish them away again within a blink of an eye um, and it's us needing to see the tenderness, intelligence and beauty of ourselves regardless of our own ideals, um, kind of accepting that. There was a really great quote that I was like, I got from the playwright um, of Frankenstein called Nick Deer, and basically he says, the creature is something which is created um, and a monster is a freak of nature. And then he also goes on to say, what does it mean to be human? How do we define ourselves to be human? Like that's all what Mary Shelley is trying to say. And it's yeah. It's huge stuff and you don't realize it until like you sort of start researching it and letting it sink in. It's it's almost like being able to tap into like the tenderness of what Frankenstein is. It gives you a a whole huge view on like how fundamentally like it was such an F you to like the church and everything at that time. <laughs> Because it was like, creation is something that we make sometimes, and sometimes it's terrifying and sometimes it's beautiful, but we're not in control of it anymore. You know, once you've made it, it's out there. So it's a, it's, it's one of my favourites, actually. <laughs> it's a lot to think on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is an interesting one because it is that whole what makes somebody a human, what makes humans different from other animals. And it is that importance of we're wired in certain ways, but if we're not brought up in certain ways as well, 
we lose that because you've seen it when and you know there's been very rare occasions and it sounds nonsensical but it has happened where a baby has been brought up in a setting where there's no parents and there's just yeah. animals around i can't even remember where it was but there was a there was a story of that well there's like the wolf girl isn't there yeah that's kind of what i'm getting at but she from what i remember didn't have those same kind of morals in like a human sense i mean obviously animals have their own mm. way of doing things and like if you're you know pack animals for example have a hierarchy and they have social cues and that kind of thing but there's still quite a big jump from that kind of social aspect to a human's social aspect in some of mm. our complexities i mean there are definitely animal groups and subgroups that have massive complexities that humans still don't understand and that we're still researching and beginning to learn about but i think it's that mm. self-awareness that kind of sets humans apart i think i remember seeing something once and it's like most animals don't actually recognize themselves in the mirror because they don't have that sense of yeah. self like humans do and it's like you see you know a cat and a dog all look in a mirror and they'd be like <laughs> oh my god there's a cat i'm gonna get it kind of thing and it's themselves whereas a human looks in a mirror when they get to a certain age and they know that it's themselves but babies might not always realize that and that's because they're mm. then brought up to understand that but they still need that help understanding that and if they don't have that and that's when things go awry and it's you know and relating it back to kind of real life and you see it when it comes to certain people who in history have done dreadful things mm. like certain serial killers and you know these people when you actually look back at their history and their i mean it's not always the case some people are born into beautiful situations with loving family and friends but when they're born yeah. their brains are wired wrong and they become monsters but there are some people that are a consequence that are kind of created because of all the horrible things that have happened to them and that impacts mm. on the way they're wired and i think you can really relate to that with frankenstein and what makes a human a human and he didn't have the opportunity to find that out because he was just right from the beginning just disregarded mm. as this thing and it was almost like dehumanizing him in that sense and it's sad that he was kind of given life but not taught yeah. what to do yeah. with it yeah it was um it was almost like the gift of life tore him through like it yeah he was created he wasn't born into it so it's kind of um it's thrust upon him with this full brain being able to talk and comp and try to comprehend things, but there's no one there to. Um, it's like someone after a stroke, you know, having to relearn things in a way. Mm. Seeing that, yeah. seeing the relationship between, you know, Victor Frankenstein and the creature on stage, and having them talk to one another, it does make you feel like different parts of yourself discussing things. In my mind, it really does feel like that. Mm. Listen to me, Frankenstein. You accuse me of murder, and yet you would, with satisfied conscience, destroy your one creature. Oh, praise the eternal justice of man. Yet I ask you not to spare me. Listen to me, and then if you can, and if you will, destroy the work of your hands. These words uttered by the creature are so knowing because it takes a great deal of emotional intelligence to ask to be destroyed. Any living thing with the perpetual motion of life has the instinct to live, live only on the food chain hierarchy. But Frankenstein's creature, with sensitivity, sees things he has done in his abrupt path of learning. So without blaming his creator for not teaching him and leaving him alone, he does not believe he deserves to live. 
right. You like my recommendation. <laughs> are you gonna are you gonna tell me a recommendation, Jenny? <laughs> yeah. So my recommendation fits in very nicely with La Cage Vols, and it is called The Birdcage. Now, the I film The Birdcage. S- I've not seen The Birdcage. Have you not seen The Birdcage? No. My film buff friend hasn't <laughs> seen The Birdcage. I know there are some that I've just not seen, and that's kind of like one of the hidden gems I've not gone on to yet. Do you know of The Birdcage? Not really, no. Okay, so The Birdcage is an adaptation of the kind of original film and play. It's not a musical, mm-hmm. it's not a musical version of it, it's just like a film version of it. And it's from 1996 and it stars Robin Williams and Nathan Lane as our main gay couple and it's set in South Beach in oh America. Oh my god, no, oh my god. I do know it, but I've not seen it. Or have I? I'm so sorry, I'm going to edit this out. It's <laughs> <laughs> alright. I'm getting waves of, uh, uh, he, yeah, like, Robin Williams, when you said that, I think I, I have, think I have seen it, but I haven't seen it in a long time. Sorry, you just tell me more about it's, it. <laughs> it's brilliant. So, I watched it again last night because I've been doing my research, um, and checking everything out yesterday, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do after my La Cache Falls research? I'm going to watch The Birdcage because it is an adaptation of that play. And it's a lovely adaptation, so if you like things like... Uh, Priscilla Queen of the Desert and mm-hmm. my favourite film which is um, Tu Wong Fu uh-huh. if you love films about drag queens <laughs> that you know are feel good in the end then you're going to love The Birdcage I mean Robin Williams and Nathan Lane I mean Nathan Lane is just wonderful in it he plays <laughs> such a wonderful lead and in this version of it I believe his drag queen is called Starina so mm-hmm. she's not called Zaza in it um, but she's still this wonderful fabulous flamboyant extravagant very feminine character who is just all loving as well and again you get to see that it's like a modern interpretation set in america of that kind of dynamic the chap that is the father-in-law is like going up for re-election he's a senator and is like very conservative super kind of against you know he's not a fan of gay marriage or any of that kind of thing you know and uh yeah it's it's just a good good fun film and it's very pretty again as you can imagine there's drag queens and because it's kind of set in the south beach it's kind of like super like late 80s early 90s fashion so there's lots of people in like tiny little bikinis and lots of wonderful shirts (laughs) and agador their housemaid he's wonderful um i think it's hank azaria that plays him and he's just brilliant he's absolutely cracking and it is wonderful so if you've not seen the birdcage or if you have seen it and not seen it recently go and watch it and you know again it's based on La Cage Falls not a musical version but has music in it when they're doing performances and stuff like that and it's just it's just a fun feel good easy to watch easy movie that you know has some important themes in it because again you know Robin Williams plays this there's this bit in it where he he's talking to the son and he's kind of like yes I know I know I'm a I'm a fag I'm a middle sorry for saying that word but these I'm quoting it the script directly he's like i know i'm a middle-aged fag da, 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 but i'm proud of who i am i've worked damn hard to be this person and i'm not gonna cover it up so again it's still making sure that it addresses those themes and then also to put an extra prejudice within the script um robin williams character he's a jewish man as well so he's a jewish gay man and his son wants to marry a very conservative man's catholic daughter so there's even extra levels of prejudice in the film there but Overall, it's still like a really easy to absorb, feel good film with some brilliant acting and characters. Now that I remember it, I don't. So now I, I realise like I've seen the the you know the film version of the play that you're talking about. Like I had no mm. idea. I love that. <laughs> so I'm absolutely going to rewatch that. Like I need to love Robin Williams. I love the idea. 
so beautiful. <laughs> I guess I'll tell you my recommendation. <laughs> Ironically, um, saying birdcage, uh, I mean, you can't see it, you guys, but I'm just, I'm showing uh, Jenny my book recommendation. <laughs> and there's a little, there's a little bird in a, not so much a cage, but a glass menagerie. Guys. Yeah, dome. Uh, so my recommendation, and this book was given to me by my friend uh, Meg Burrows, because I, I drew her a picture and she was so wonderful. She was like, I'm just gonna send you some books as a thank you. I was like, oh, Aww. so beautiful. Um, and she's lovely. <laughs> I know. Um, and she sent me The Doll Factory and it's by Elizabeth McNeil. Um, and I've just started reading it. I'm about four, 80 pages in. Um, but she sent the book to me and she was like, okay, so she first sent me a book about, uh, you know, how the world is still geared towards the man, <laughs> feminism. Um, and then she sent me this one and she said, this book is basically you, just read it. I was like, okay. So I'll read you the blurb because I'm not very far in, but so far it's great. And I feel like people listening would really enjoy this. So it's London, 1850 on a crowded street. The doll maker Iris Whittle meets the artist Louis Frost. Louise is a pre-Raphaelite painter who yearns to have his work displayed in the Royal Academy, and he's desperate for Iris to be his model. Iris agrees on the condition that he teaches her to paint. Dreaming of freedom, Iris throws herself into this new life of art and love, unaware that she has caught the eye of a second man. Silas Reed is a curiosity collector, enchanted by the strange and beautiful. After seeing Iris at the site of the Great Exhibition, he finds he cannot forget her. As Iris' worlds expand, Silas's obsession grows. It is only a matter of time before they meet again. And it's so cool because basically it talks about like Malay and the Pre-Raphaelite brothers and like a whole bunch mm -hmm. of other stuff. And that's only in the first like 100 pages. I'm like, ah! So yeah, nice. that's, that's my recommendation. It's a Sunday Times bestseller. Um, so yeah, that is The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil. Um, so yeah. nice. if you're into Victorian London, the Great Exhibition, taxidermy and uh, pre-Raphaelite painting, then, you know. <laughs> Marvellous. So our, uh, our listeners have a film and a book recommendation this episode. Lucky listeners. I know, it's normally me with the <laughs> film recommendations, so <laughs> it's nice to recommend a book. Um, Super hope you enjoy these recommendations. We always try to get some stellar stuff your way. This episode, we discuss the human condition, which is also kind of what we always do. <laughs> but of course, we hope you connected and enjoyed our thoughts, ruminations, and waffles on La Cage en Foles and Frankenstein. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drunk Art Review. Head on over to our Instagram and Twitter, at Drunk Art Review, to check out the artwork we've discussed during this episode and to keep up to date with any news. If you'd like to message us directly, you can always contact us on at drunkartreview at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening, guys. This episode was hosted, created and edited by Rosie Alexander and Jennifer Kemp. Music and sound design was free-sourced.